Welcome to the forum, live streamed worldwide from the Leadership Studio at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm Dean Michelle Williams. The forum is a collaboration between the Harvard Chan School and independent news media. Each program features a panel of experts addressing some of today's most pressing public health issues. The forum is one way the school advances the frontiers of public health and makes scientific insights accessible to policymakers and the public. I hope you find this program engaging and informative. Thank you for joining us. and welcome. My name is David Freeman. Uh, I'm the editorial director of NBC News Mock and also the moderator of today's panel on antibiotic resistance. Um, today's panel, starting on my right, are Mark Lipschitz, professor of epidemiology and director of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Uh, Lori Hicks, director of the Office of Antibiotic Stewardship at the CDC. Helen Boucher, director of the Tufts Center for Integrated Management of Antimicrobial Resistance and professor of medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine, and Kevin Outerson, executive director of Co the Combating Antibiotic Resistant Bacteria Biopharmaceutical Accelerator, uh, which has an acronym uh, which makes it easier, and professor of law at Boston University. This event is being presented jointly with NBC News Digital and is part of the Lawrence H. and Roberta Cohn Forum Series. We're pleased to welcome members of the Cohn family today in the audience. We're streaming live on the websites of the Forum and NBC News Mock. Uh, we're also streaming on live on Facebook and YouTube. This program will include a brief Q&A, and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. So it's been almost uh, a century since uh, penicillin was discovered. In that time, antibiotics have transformed medicine. Uh, but concern is growing about antibiotic resistance and the rise of infections that don't respond to the first drug doctors try, or the second or third, and in some cases, bacteria is so resistant there's no drug that can eradicate the infection. The CDC says two million people are infected with drug-resistant bacteria every year in the U.S., and many predict the number will grow dramatically in the decades ahead. Today, we'll talk with experts who are treating patients with these infections, uh, crafting policies for better antibiotic stewardship, and driving the development of new drugs. Let's begin by taking a look at this video from NBC News about Canada RS, a drug-resistant fungal infection that's on the rise, especially among elderly patients in hospitals and nursing homes. It's one of the most serious and deadliest infections out there, and you've probably never even heard of it. It's called Candida auris, or C. auris for short. Here's why public health officials are so concerned. C. auris is a drug-resistant fungus, which mm. makes it very difficult to treat. It can also be difficult to diagnose, and it is spreading quickly in hospitals and nursing homes in some parts of the U.S. The fungus preys on the most vulnerable patients, the elderly and people with compromised immune systems. That's why the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is sounding the alarm, calling C. auris an urgent threat. They're hoping to raise awareness here and around the world, too. This really is an infection that we're seeing in the sickest of the sick. So these are very medically experienced patients who've been hospitalized for many days that have been in and out of hospitals or have received real medically invasive procedures. I think the good news is, is that it still remains relatively rare. The bad news is with this particular candida, it 
readily acquires resistance to the antifungal medicines that we use to treat it. C. auris is highly invasive and can live on medical equipment and in a patient's hospital room, all over the room, in fact. There have been nearly 600 cases in the U.S., mostly in New York, New Jersey, and Illinois. So, uh, Mark, that's, that's one new threat, and, uh, but it's not the only one. Can you tell us really, tell, explain to us why, um, what causes resistance to happen in the first place and where we are with the current moment? Sure. Thank you for the chance to be here. Um, resistance to antibacterial and antifungal drugs has been around about as long as those organisms have been around because most of the, the, the compounds that we now use medically have their origin as natural compounds uh, that, virus, that bacteria and fungi produce to kill one another and therefore there's selection for resistance in nature even before we came along with our drugs. Um, the, the change now is that over the past more than half a century, now we've been using larger and larger quantities of these antibacterial and antifungal drugs uh, against the, the pathogens, the, the microorganisms that cause disease, the ones that we care the most about. And so what was once a problem, a small problem everywhere, uh, or a small phenomenon everywhere, is now being magnified exactly where we don't want it, in the people, uh, in, the, in the organisms that infect people uh, and, and make us ill. Um, when antibiotics were invented, when you read the early history, it was difficult to make even enough for one patient, and now you can see, sometimes get them free at Kroger. Uh, uh, and so the, the scale of availability of antibiotics is really unprecedented, and uh, that's true in the rich world. In the, in the developing world, it's growing and growing uh, as people uh, acquire access. Uh, that's a wonderful thing because antibiotics save lives in many ways but it also intensifies the selection for uh, resistance. Um, one phenomenon that, two phenomena that, that make that particularly challenging are first that bacteria are very good at sharing genes, uh, meaning that if resistance develops in one organism, it can rapidly spread to other species uh, that may be quite distantly related. And so that means that each time we use a drug, we're in a sense polluting the environment with, with more genes that can then spread elsewhere. And the second thing that's a, a problem that we've worked on, uh, and Christine, uh, who's in the audience, uh, led this work, um, is the phenomenon of bystander selection, which is, we say, uh, which is what we call uh, the fact that when I take an antibiotic to, for a good reason, say to treat a, a real bacterial infection, the bacteria in me don't know why I'm taking that antibiotic, and they're all exposed. So the bacteria in my gut or on my skin, the infections in my nose, the, inf the bacteria all around me, uh, all, all parts of me, uh, nonetheless um, get exposed. And so a lot of the exposure, uh, even when we take drugs appropriately, is, is these sort of off-target effects. And then when we add on top of that the fact that uh, a lot of drugs are taken inappropriately for no good reason or for not a bacterial infection, that just adds to the selective pressure. So that's why the, the issue is, is building over time. So thanks. So Lori, so you're, uh, you know, the CDC is on the front lines here. Mm -hmm. How do you, um, how does the CDC look at uh, antibiotic resistance and what's it doing to address the issue? Yes, and thank you for this opportunity as well. So CDC considers antibiotic resistance a threat that really jeopardizes patient safety. 
So we really are looking at this problem from that patient safety lens and trying to work with our partners to make sure that we're detecting and responding to the antibiotic resistance threats. Also working to prevent infections and spread of infections and then Lastly, improving how we're using our antibiotics. And the work that I do focuses on human healthcare, but there are other federal colleagues who are also working on this problem in agriculture and in the environment. And as you've already heard, antibiotics are life-saving drugs. So they're precious drugs that we really need to use wisely. And um, the message that I want to share with all of you as we're trying to figure out you know, who's really responsible for this problem is that we can all take a responsibility to help solve this problem. Each time you or I take an antibiotic, we are much more likely to subsequently develop an infection that is resistant antibiotics in the future. And we can share those resistant organisms or resistant bacteria with all of those people around us. So that's one of the things that makes taking antibiotics unique compared to other types of medications. And as Mark already alluded to, we use antibiotics a lot in this country. Uh, one study that we did at CDC looked at the frequency of unnecessary antibiotic use in doctor's offices and emergency departments, and we found that a full 30% of antibiotic courses prescribed in these settings were completely unnecessary. So a lot of unnecessary use, and that unnecessary use is often for for syndromes like coughs and colds, which will get better without any antibiotic treatment. The problem with, with that is not only does that contribute to antibiotic resistance, but taking an antibiotic, particularly when it's not needed, will not give you any benefit, but then it also puts you at risk for the side effects associated with antibiotics and other adverse events, which we can talk about more. But one I would like to mention is just Clostridioides difficile infection, which is a potentially deadly form of diarrhea. And I think those adverse events are underappreciated. So I think what we really need to do is strive for a better balance between access to antibiotics, making sure the patients who absolutely need access to antibiotics, patients who have sepsis, patients in countries who have limited access to antibiotics, have those antibiotics available to them when they need them. But we also need to make sure that we're not using antibiotics excessively in these scenarios where, where we have coughs and colds being treated with antibiotics, and then this can lead to unintended consequences. So my job at CDC and I'm working with a number of different partners on this issue is to improve how antibiotics work, to make sure we're optimizing antibiotic treatment. And that concept is known as antibiotic stewardship. So Helen, you're, you care for patients who have these infections. Tell us about um, how they, how, what it's like to have these sorts of infections and changing the way doctors make uh, decisions about their care. Great, thank you so much for having me. Um, and I am first and foremost a clinician, so I thought I'd tell you about a couple of patients we recently treated. So the first is a young lady um, who unfortunately has a history of uh, injecting drugs, um, and she had had two separate prior heart valve infections uh, related to opioid use. Over the course of the past two years, she had had uh, two different infections, one of which required surgical repair, and the second one uh, was related to MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, uh, and involved a heart valve that had to be surgically corrected. During that time, she had kidney failure related to treatment with the antibiotic vancomycin uh, and required a long time in the hospital. Her course was further complicated with a chest wound infection 
after that surgery, also due to MRSA. We saw her this time when she was 22 weeks pregnant uh, and she had more problems with this chest wound. And she required um, multiple surgeries, long courses of antibiotics, uh, lots of time in the hospital, including time in the ICU. And ultimately, she delivered a healthy full-term baby, which was great. Um, but her problems have continued. And so this young mom now is dealing with an MRSA infection for which she might need uh, another heart valve replacement, which is very complicated you know, when this has to be done over time. So we know that in people who inject drugs and the opioid epidemic is a huge problem here in Boston and around the country, uh, there's a 16 times greater risk of MRSA infection. So the burden of this resistant infection is, is really large. And sadly, this lady's case is not an isolated incident. It's happening all around our country um, right now. The second lady I want to tell you about is a, kind of in a different category of patients. This is a lady I cared for earlier this year who had had leukemia and had undergone successful chemotherapy. So she was completely in remission. There was no cancer in her body. Um, and we were called when she developed pneumonia and a bloodstream infection due to a gram-negative bacterial pathogen. And unfortunately, the lab told us that uh, the bug was resistant to every antibiotic we could test in our laboratory. So I went to see this lady and she was awake and talking and we had a conversation and she asked how this was possible and you know, how could it be that I didn't have anything for her and we you know, told her we would do our best and we did and we worked with um, an expert uh, in this particular bacteria and with the FDA we obtained an investigational new drug uh, within four days for her um, and came up with a combination of antibiotics to give her but sadly she did not survive, she died 10 days later. So this lady kind of in the prime of her life who had survived her cancer uh, succumbed to an infection. And I think you know, there are a number of lessons from this story. And um, again, unfortunately, uh, these really um, sad, horrifying uh, episodes happen where we have to tell patients we can't support them either through therapy that they need or after therapy that they've had. And so we as clinicians, we need tools in our toolbox. We need antibiotics that aren't toxic and that will work for the variety of patients who we see. We need antibiotics for the problems we know about, like the two I just mentioned, and the ones that are coming. We don't always know what the next resistant problem will be, so we need a robust and renewable pipeline of antibiotics. So that's a little snapshot of where we are on the front lines. Well, so talking about toolbox, why isn't it the case, Kevin, that uh, the drugs are just streaming along and the new pipelines, new tools all the time for these doctors to use? So I, I guess it's my job to make sure the toolbox is full, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Your job. so I, I work at Carvax, and uh, I have to say that while the science is daunting, I don't think the primary problem is science. I think the primary problem here is economic. We have a lot of excellent small companies in the United States and around the world that are doing amazing research that are some of which are being supported by Carvex, which is nonprofit. Um, but uh, the economic problems are the ones that are really blocking this uh, research from making it to the market. If you look back, I don't know, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, there were dozens of, of huge pharmaceutical companies with, with thousands of people working on research and developing and uh, doing clinical trials and then supporting these, these products in the marketplace. And, um, you know, we, we fight about this. We just came from a large meeting um, of, of infectious disease scientists. You know, exactly how many large companies are left, I think it's safe to say it's a very small handful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the efforts that used to have tens of thousands of people now have dozens of people at them. Um, there's a lot of small companies that are doing the work, um, and a lot of them are being supported by Carbex. Uh, the average size of them were like 20, 
employees. These are really small enterprises <laughs> doing amazing work uh, with, with very modest budgets. But uh, a 20-person company just doesn't have the heft to, to global, uh, globally you know, bring this to market and put it out there. And the most distressing thing is we're seeing some of these small companies now filing for bankruptcy. Uh, and one of the one company, Acadian, uh, went all throughout the process, 12 years of research and development, finally got their FDA approval, and nine months later they're bankrupt because the drug was just not selling on the market. And so the the scientists and the and the all the people in this area are moving on. Most of the people that have left these large companies have gone on to something else where they can make money, to hepatitis C or, or, or to cancer or something else. Um, and so we're losing the capacity globally to actually do this research and development. And I have one slide. Um, and on the slide, you'll see some terms that actually Lori, you know, set this up for me well. So think about access. The, the biggest problem in the world today, you know, Antibiotic-resistant bacteria killed at least 23,000 people in the United States, and the CDC will soon have a new estimate out. Maybe it's, <laughs> I'll let you say anything about that. November. Uh, in November. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, globally, more people die from, from, a, from a lack of access to an antibiotic we already have, right? And so access is a serious problem globally. But if you, if you solve the access problem by giving out free antibiotics to everybody on the planet, you will destroy you know, the, their drugs, the resistance. And so if you look at our innovation, which is kind of the space I work in, innovation is important, right? We, we need new drugs, but if, you, if they're so high priced that people can't get them who need them, or if you, uh, if you create these new drugs but then waste them, no stewardship, uh, then, then you're wasting your time. And similarly on, on stewardship, uh, stewardship, if done poorly by people who don't understand it, can constrain access. Right? It's, and, and also stewardship is really one of the problems right now for new antibiotics in the United States in a sense that, that uh, there's no other innovative product in which, like your phone or your laptop, in which the goal is the most innovative product is never to be sold or to be used as sparingly as possible. You know, what would that do to, to mobile phone, cell phone innovation? Right. That's what it's done to antibiotic innovation. So these are interconnected problems. We have to solve all three together. And the consensus solution is something called delinkage, which is no longer paying for antibiotics based on the, on the volume sold, on the number of pills and people. But realizing antibiotics are valuable to society. We need these, and we need the new ones to sit on the shelf. We don't want them to be given away for free at Kroger's. <laughs> um, but we also need the companies to survive and for there to be an ecosystem in which the market still works in this area. So. Mm. All right, thank you. All right, well, with that kind of basis, but now we're gonna shift the conversation a bit to what uh, can be done to combat the problem of antibiotic resistance from bedside to drug makers labs to Congress. Uh, but first, let's watch a clip uh, from the CDC. It underscores the consequences of antibiotic overuse globally, and it calls on different communities to help stop it. A clip is uh, shown courtesy of the CDC.
So um, the clip is, refers to last year's AMR challenge uh, to combat antimicrobial resistance uh, around the world and to prioritize possible solutions. Um, one big priority involves antibiotic stewardship to improve the way drugs are, are prescribed and used by patients. And Laura, you said that, and it said in a video also, about a third of uh, these drugs are used inappropriately in, in uh, doctors' offices. Um, tell us a bit about that problem and what CDC is doing to, to uh, correct it. Now, I also just want to mention that there's a lot of opportunities to improve antibiotic use across the full spectrum of healthcare. So we see a lot of unnecessary use in doctors' offices, but we also see opportunities to improve use in nursing homes and hospitals as well. One thing that when we first began working on this issue is that we thought that maybe the major problem was that there was a knowledge deficit. That physicians, doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants didn't know what they were supposed to do or how to prescribe um, in certain circumstances. And, and since then, we've learned a lot that it's actually much more complicated mm -hmm. than that. Unfortunately, just educating <clears throat> providers is not enough because the problem is actually more of a psychosocial issue and really involves how the patients and the physician or other healthcare <coughs> providers are interacting with patients. So one example is if you go to your doctor and that doctor thinks that you expect an antibiotic either for yourself or for your child, they are much more likely to prescribe an antibiotic. So it's really that, that interaction, that, that perception of what you want as a patient that impacts how that provider, that clinician may prescribe. We're also in the age of the Yelp factor. And so the potential for bad reviews also has a major impact. And that is something that phys physicians are very concerned about. You know, how are they going to be perceived if they get bad reviews? And then in addition to that, there's also a lot of uncertainty in diagnosis of infections. And in the past, the thought was, well, it's better safe than sorry to give the antibiotic in a situation if I don't know whether my patient has an infection that requires it. But now we're learning that maybe that's not the best approach. And actually, because of the unintended consequences of giving that antibiotic, that there may be other steps that can be taken to deal with that uncertainty. I'm gonna give you two examples of how we're trying to improve practices, prescribing practices. One is arming physicians, nurse practitioners, and PAs with the communication techniques that really help them to make sure that the patient walks out satisfied. No patient should walk out without a plan. So making sure the patient has a contingency plan and also making sure that that patient has some ideas for how to manage their symptoms in the, no matter whether or not an antibiotic is prescribed. And then lastly, we've also know that doctors have very poor insight into their own prescribing practices. If you ask any doctor, any nurse practitioner, any physician assistant, they're gonna tell you, I'm prescribing great. My prescribing patterns are not contributing to this problem. And it's the surgeons, it's my partners, it's everyone else, maybe to the urgent care facility. But when you provide them data on their own prescribing practices, especially if you can compare them to their peers, that is often helpful in giving them insight into their behavior and has been shown to be effective in changing how they prescribe. Is there any talk about giving placebos to patients who want pills? That's exactly right. I mean, I think one of the most common um, 
co common reasons for a doctor to give a patient an antibiotic was for placebo effect. And I think now we really know that that's just not a safe practice and that there are adverse events associated with giving that antibiotic. Not only resistance, but also side effects and adverse events from those antibiotics themselves. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, Kevin, you, you talked a bit about the economics of the, uh, de the problems with the pipeline. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about uh, what it takes exactly to develop a new drug and what can be done to speed it up? Anything else you want to say about that? This is an enormously difficult scientific process is where it starts. And I have to say thank you to the NIH who's been funding some of these crazy ideas for decades. Um, without that sort of base scientific research, we, we would be lost right now. But uh, when, when the research leaves a university you know, and, and begins to form around a company, um, that company needs a lot of things. And one thing they need is some idea that their investors are not going to lose everything. You know, like a Cajun, like I said, 12 years, $750 million spent, uh, went into bankruptcy. The, the drug sold for $16 million because our marketplace, for many reasons, just doesn't value a new antibiotic, okay? No one wants to do that again <laughs> after seeing that. And, and so finding ways to support these wonderful teams of scientists and small companies so that you know, they have at least some way to go forward is, is a lot of what I spend my, my days and nights doing. Well, did you want anything to that? I mean, from your perspective, Lori, from you? Well, I definitely think that um, innovation is really key here. And whether we're talking about new drugs or new diagnostics, we really definitely need to be focusing on opportunities to innovate in ways that will provide um, new antibiotics. And, and, and we also need to be thinking about the drug development. When we're investing in drug development, we need to make sure we're in investing in drugs that are actually um, addressing the threats that are, that are really most pressing. And I think one of the challenges is that a lot of the new discoveries or the new drugs that have been released recently are targeting the same types of bacteria that our existing drugs are targeting. And so it's really about thinking about how we can expand upon and, and do better to target the types of resistant infections for which we still have very few options. So I have to say, Carbex does, we, we invest in therapeutics, right? We also invest in diagnostics and antibacterial vaccines. But uh, from the word go, we, we chose the CDC threat list from 2013 um, uh, as our target because we wanted to do exactly that, not to try to do the same old, but mm -hmm. something that was more innovative. We're looking forward to a new version so that we can <laughs> adjust those targets a little bit. I also want to say that every company that receives funding from Carbex, uh, undertakes a contractual commitment, which is the strongest on the planet, uh, that that molecule will not be used in a way that's contrary to stewardship, mm. right? We, we bake into the, right. the arrangements at the very beginning uh, concerns about access and concerns about stewardship because we really believe that tripod, we want to do all three simultaneously. Thank you. And so, uh, so Mark, uh, people are talking about, you know, Lauren Kevin talked about targeting and prioritization. How can you tell us a bit about how that happens? How should we be prioritizing these efforts to get the most bang for the buck? Yeah, I think that's an a ongoing question of uh, it's the subject of a lot of research. Um, one of the challenges there is that, as in many 
parts of public health. The areas where we have the best data are the areas where we uh, maybe the needs are not as great, uh, which is to say um, much of the developing world has very, very limited, maybe in the double digits or triple digits uh, of, of cases where we actually know the infection and the, and the drug resistance pattern of that infection. So just getting a handle on the scope of the problem, it's very basic work, it's not very uh, flashy, but understanding, we can't prioritize our interventions unless we have a, a clearer sense of what, what, what and where the problem is. Um, and that's true even at the patient level. So there's lots of antibiotic treatment given in places where you have only a little bit of a sense of what's infecting people. Almost all antibiotic treatment is given, as they call it, empirically, meaning yeah. we think we know what it might be and we'll treat with the assumption that it might be that. But if you, but that's a guess, and it's an educated guess, but you can get it wrong. So surveillance uh, and better data not only help with addressing the resistance problem, but it also helps patients get what they need. So I think that's one piece of it. Another piece of it at the bigger level is really just uh, trying to use what data we do have to make a list, an ordered list to some extent, of what are the interventions that could make the biggest impact uh, on on drug resistance, um, and uh, at the moment that remains a challenge, and we can talk about that some more later. Okay. Um, I, Helen, um, I wonder what, you're, what you think when you hear what Mark is saying about prioritization. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think it's very important, and um, again, sort of in the day-to-day -day life of us in U.S. hospitals right now, the biggest problem is gram-negative uh, bacteria that have become resistant to many of our available options, and that's what's limiting the ability to provide medical care that, that all citizens really are entitled to. So um, we know about that problem. We know that there's still some gram-positive problems like MRSA around. We don't know what's coming <laughs> next. And I think that um, part of, uh, back to the very beginning of this talk, you know, antibiotic resistance has been around before antibiotics and it will be around after antibiotics. So there, there's more coming. And one thing we've learned is that we need to be prepared for what we don't know as well. And so making sure that somebody is involved in discovery efforts and starting the science to be ready for those, those oncoming problems is very, very important for our patients. But right now, the problem is on the resistant gram negatives. And I think to the earlier question about how to do it faster, there is a lot of work um, trying to innovate how we do clinical trials in patients so that we can get to answers about the sickest patients with the worst infections faster. It's complicated and it involves legal things at the FDA and, and the process of drug development, but um, at least I and we are very encouraged by the collaboration that's going on across our government and with academia and with the companies to try to really make meaningful differences so that we can get to the point where, to Lori's concern, that drugs that we need are studied in ways that will help us and our patients the most. So, Kevin, thank you very much. Kim, what about the legislative efforts? I mean, what needs to be done by the government to make this happen? What kind of laws do we need? Like I said earlier, one of the problems is, is the very innovative product that we try to buy as little of as possible and how that would destroy. And, and not, only, you know, not only is the volume low for these highly innovative antibiotics, but the price is relatively low. The, it's uh, the most expensive antibiotic in human history is about $10,000 per course of treatment, which for a cancer drug is like, I don't know, the first 20 minutes or, you know, or something. <laughs> it, it, so, uh, so no wonder we have a thousand, you know, clinical 
development projects in cancer and, and, and 41 in antibacterials, and most of those 41 are not things that we really think are very exciting. So we have to change the way antibiotics are paid for. Um, there's a bill in Congress called the Disarm Act, which um, isn't delinkage, as I described earlier, but it would change the way that Medicare pays for antibiotics. And uh, in the view of most experts who, who look at this, would be a, a significant improvement in that. But beyond that, you know, the more revolutionary or satisfactory challenge you know, is to pay for them based on value, not volume. And that requires something that's called a market entry reward, really a giant prize, you know, a giant payment uh, for a really amazing antibiotic that reaches the market knowing that you're going to use as little of it as possible for the first decade. Mm -hmm. okay. You know, drugs have patents. Patents run out after about 14 or 15 years. You know, if you tell people, if you deliver the best antibiotic we've ever seen in human history, and we're going to use it as little as possible until your patent runs out, no one will make it, right? So, <laughs> so the market entry reward is, is designed to get around that problem, to get us the drug we want, but to not give any company an incentive to overmarket it. So it sounds like a long, difficult process, and maybe we can talk a bit about when preventing these infections, right? So that might be lower-hanging fruit. Mark, can you talk about that? What, what can, uh, what can be done to do a better job of, of preventing infections? Yeah, I think that's that's essential. So, uh, any time, any infection that you don't get, it doesn't matter if it would have been resistant or not, because you don't get it, and it doesn't need to be treated. Um, so how do we prevent infections? Well, in, in, uh, there are a number of ways. One is hygiene and sanitation. We don't get uh, as much diarrheal disease as we used to in this country because we have clean water and we have access um, to sanitation. Uh, that's not true everywhere. Um, another way we prevent infections is vaccination. And uh, it's clear that uh, that has a really a double benefit. So every infection you prevent with a vaccine is, is we don't care if it's resistant or not. Uh, and so we lower the burden that way. And then we also lower the further burden of, of evolutionary uh, selective pressure because even if you get a viral infection, we just heard a lot of viral infections and colds and other, other um, non-bacterial uh, infections get treated with antibiotics. So if we can prevent viral infections with vaccines or, or hygiene, we can uh, also reduce the use of antibiotics until all use is only appropriate, which may be a long time off. Um, so all of those, and then in hospitals, there are a, a, a whole range of prevention measures to try to, to, try to um, reduce transmission between patients and reduce uh, the entry of, of bacteria that one patient has into the parts of that, their body that will cause an infection. So, um, so there's a whole list of those types of interventions. Some of them we have really good evidence for, um, and some of them um, we need to generate further evidence about what they could do for antibiotic resistance. We know they do a lot for preventing infections, but we need to understand the impact on resistance even better.
Thank you. Did you want to add anything about your perspective? Well, I, I wanted to echo yeah. your comments on vaccines <coughs> because um, right now is the perfect time to go and get your flu shot. <laughs> I was on the plane yesterday on the way up to Boston and there was just a symphony of people coughing around me. Uh, and I, I grabbed my um, hand sanitizer and I just felt like just covering myself. <laughs> <in it. laughs> but um, so washing hands hands, hand sanitizer if you have that available. Um, but the reason why I mentioned the flu shot is even though many of you probably realize that the flu is a viral infection and antibiotics don't treat viral infections, it's remarkable how many patients who have flu or symptoms related to flu get an antibiotic unnecessarily. And in addition to that, the flu can lead to a secondary bacterial infection, which can lead to that antibiotic as well. So really great time to get that flu shot. Um, and also think about when you're traveling um, and out and about, uh, hand, hand sanitizer, uh, hand washing is a really helpful uh, practice. And don't ask your provider for the antibiotics. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny, I'm a bit com coming, o overcoming a cold myself, and I just saw the doctor, and the doctor tested me for strep throat to see quickly. So diagnostics, rapid yeah. diagnostics, seems like a critical part of this. Helen, can you talk about that? Yeah, if we knew uh, whether the patient before us had a bacterial or viral infection, that would be the best, right? We could tell you with certainty that this is a virus and you don't need an antibiotic. And sadly, in 2019, we just don't have that mm -hmm. technology. We have emerging technology that's really good. We have tests now that tell us rapidly if it's influenza A, B, or some other things. That doesn't tell us with 100% certainty, though, that there's not also a bacteria, to Lori's earlier <laughs> point. So in our most vulnerable patients, we're still sometimes guessing. And most um, outpatient settings still don't have access to that technology, and we have to learn really the best way to use it. And it's very important that we use the technology we have in good, with good stewardship, and it's been shown with very good studies that linking it to expert advice about which antibiotics to use. And I think this is just highlights what stewardship really is, which is using the best antibiotic at the best dose in the patient at the right time. So sometimes stewardship is actually using a stronger antibiotic, mm -hmm. not a less strong one. We wanna use the optimal therapy in every patient. So diagnostics have a long way to come, and I think to the earlier conversation, there are some unique challenges of studying diagnostics with new medicines that we need to work on as well. Ideally, right, we'd have a diagnostic and a new medical technology coming to the market at the same time, and that's very difficult. So um, we and others are advocating uh, for measures to kind of improve that regulation so that that's possible, um, so that we can answer that question better. Thank you. So one thing we've been mentioned a few times, we haven't delved into it, but let's do it now, about the role of agriculture and industry. Is that something, Mark, uh, what, what, from your perspective, what, needs, what can the agriculture sector do, uh, better do to, to uh, prevent antibiotic resistance? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think this is an area where um, there's maybe less consensus. I think the, what the, where there is consensus is that there is a lot of use of antibiotics in agriculture. Um, probably a lot more in uh, in some of the countries that also have poor sanitation and therefore where the where the potential for spread is greater um, and <coughs> that we do acquire bacteria from agriculture uh, that are resistant um, I my perspective has been that that aspect is a little bit overblown uh, by many places uh, in many places because uh, many of the bacteria that we that infect us 
uh, including some of the ones where we are most concerned about antibiotic resistance, are not the ones that come from, from food or from agricultural exposure. But some of them are, and the gram-negatives uh, that are of great concern certainly are. Um, so I think it's, it's a piece of the problem, it's not the whole problem, and that there is a, sometimes a tendency to, to notice the enormous quantity of antibiotics that are used in agriculture by tonnage. It certainly is a majority of antibiotic use, but the bacteria we care about are a very small subset of the bacteria that get exposed. So, so my focus has been on the human side, but there is clearly a contribution from, from, uh, from agriculture. And I should say that the human side, the correlations between use of antibiotics on the human side and resistance in human pathogens is very high, and that correlation is less apparent for sure between agricultural use and resistance in the pathogens we care about. Mm -hmm. Does anyone else have anything to add about agricultural? Well, I would just say that, you know, this is a, a focus of a lot of the efforts um, globally and nationally on antibiotic resistance, the so-called One Health approach, recognizing the link between humans, animals, and the environment. And um, we and many others have been interested in studying not just agricultural animals, but what about the animals we live with, our, our dogs and our cats? And we've learned some very interesting things that, you know, many of us exchange all kinds of things with our animals. <laughs> they sleep in our beds, you know, all those kind of things. But MRSA and other pathogens that are bad have been found going back and forth between companion animals. And the state of the science is not uh, at the level that we would all hope. So I think that uh, to echo what Mark said, I think we need better science. And um, there are a number of groups, including the WHO and groups in America, you know, really investing in this. And in the US, um, in 2017, the Veterinary Feed Directive was passed to a big agreement to stop using antibiotics for growth promotion in food animals. And since that time, we've seen real improvement uh, in antibiotic use in food animals and some decrease in resistance. So that's encouraging. Um, we need better science and we need more time to see how those efforts work. But I think that um, this is an area to keep our eyes on. Well, did you want to anything about One Health? Well, I, I would just say that um, inevitably we have to work together. This is, uh, you know, we have to work across sectors, human, agriculture, and environment. And uh, I'm very heartened by the engagement in the agriculture industry and among veterinarians. I've been to a number of meetings lately where um, I, I'm the human antimicrobial stewardship speaker um, speaking to an audience of veterinarians. Um, and there are many, many sessions and they're very engaged on this topic. And so they do wanna really make a difference. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot of movement. I'm also seeing a lot of commitments from industry. Uh, now, David mentioned earlier the AMR challenge, and um, this was a U.S. government event to try to garner in, uh, commitments from a number of different organizations. Many of the organizations that made commitments were um, representatives of the agriculture industry. Um, we also had uh, commitments from McDonald's and a lot of large organizations and companies that distribute food, food products. And lastly, I just want to say as a consumer, you can play a role um, when you go to the grocery store and make choices about what kinds of foods you're willing to, to buy and purchase and, and eat. And we know that consumers are driving a lot of the changes we're seeing in how, um, an how antibiotics are being used in animals. Thank you. So we have about uh, a little 12 minutes left, and let's switch now, if we could, to uh, Q&A. Um, and we're uh, short on time, so if I'll uh, read a question which we have online here, 
and I'll pick one, one of you to answer the question, so raise your hands when there's a question you want to answer. The question from Amir at the Leibniz Institute of Photonic Technology in Denmark. Many scientists are working on rapid diagnostics, but how does fast identification of the microbe help in the clinic, specifically finding the strain or species, not the resistance information? Who what? I, I'll start with that. So, <laughs> so um, it can be very helpful um, in the clinic because we know that certain infections like urinary tract infections, for example, are most commonly caused by three bugs, right? So we, clinicians, that could be extremely helpful to us and, and we're worried about certain things. So for example, in a urinary tract infection, we'd want to know if there was pseudomonas. So if you had a diagnostic that could tell us that, that's just one example. I have no idea what this person is involved in studying, but that's just one example. Um, people with skin infections were concerned about MRSA. So if we had something at our fingertips, uh, that could be a great stewardship technique. So it could use something very simple and cheap versus something more complicated and expensive and also has prognostic significance for how sick that patient is at risk of becoming. It's shocking how 19th century a lot of our current diagnostic technology mm -hmm. is. And there's a lot of room for improvement. Mm -hmm. But we're going to run out of time. I just want to ask a couple of quick questions again. A question from Scott at openbiome.org. How do we develop quantitative targets, numbers of drug candidates, reductions in antibiotic use in the fight to combat antibiotic resistance? Anyone want to talk on that one? Might be you, Lori. But you know, I mean, Open Biome is here in, yeah. in Boston. They're a well-known microbiome, you know, fecal microbiotic trans, you know, transfer company. Well, I would but definitely say that there's a lot of work being done in the field of uh, the microbiome research and trying to identify, you know, how we can manage the antibiotic resistance problem by by treating or or actually altering our microbiome. And so, um, because as you're taking the antibiotic, of course, that's exactly what's happening: is that you're uh, when you take an antibiotic, you're altering all the bacteria that live in and on your body, regardless of uh, what, what type of bacteria you're actually targeting with that, with that particular drug. Um, so I think that in the future, we are going to see a lot of work that's focusing on maybe, you know, one of the best treatments for preventing future episodes of antibiotic resistance, maybe restoring that microbiome, that gut microbiome. Um, and in fact, uh, one example right now is um, for Clostridioides difficile infection. You know, there have been some examples of patients who've not been able to be um, treated successfully with our standard treatment for Clostridioides difficile infection. And so the thought of um, replacing the bacteria that the normal bacteria, normal flora that live in our guts may be the best solution going forward, particularly for patients who are failing treatments. Anything else to add to that? All I want to say is that, you know, there was a point in which we thought all bacteria is bad and we need to kill them all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're now realizing that there's actually a complex ecology uh, on and around all systems, not just human life, mm -hmm. and that a lot of it is actually very beneficial for us. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, thanks. Another question. This is a question from, from Sasha at Quidel. What are most critical infections and resistance-causing antibiotics that require immediate attention from developers of diagnostic products? I think I understand that. What would you consider as ideal diagnostic technology for detection of, of uh, antimicrobial resist antibiotic resistance. Well, from Carbex uh, on our website, carbex.org, there's a, a section on, on what we're looking for in diagnostics and a fairly detailed scope document there, which I won't repeat. 
but clinicians probably have hopefully a similar wish list. Well, we do, but I'd say that you know it's it's can't be overstated that on the front lines, um, bacteria versus virus. If anyone gets that, it's huge. So the, the things that we deal with in the hospital, I take care of transplant patients. We have very sophisticated things we're looking for. But the simple, simple, simple bacteria versus virus would be huge. And there are prizes out there, and I think a lot of people are working on it, but very important. Okay, another question here. This is a question from Kristen on Facebook. What role do vaccines have in reducing AMR, and is this contribution considered by stakeholders in recommending vaccination, paying for them, getting vaccinated? I think that's that's a great question, and uh, I mentioned earlier that they do have a role. I think the there is research going on now, and uh, an imp increasing appreciation by uh, medical research funders and by uh, payers for healthcare that vaccines play a role in AMR prevention. I think that we're at the stage now of saying it's potentially very large, uh, and trying to pick out some of the vaccines that are most pressing for that, but we need to quantify that better. Okay, thank you. Um, so this is a question from Cody. Um, without, um, without selective pressure, at what rate would you expect loss of genes associated with antibiotic resistance to occur? Pretty technical question. That's a, <laughs> in, in theory. <laughs> I mean, this was, you know, early theory papers said, oh, if we withdraw the antibiotic use, then, then the bacteria will become susceptible again and we can just cycle between them. And <laughs> the, the reality of that has been more complex because the biology is just a lot more complex. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there, it's a topic that we've done some work on and it's very, very case specific. So some genes that confer resistance are very costly to the bacteria when they first appear and then as they, the bacteria evolve to get used to them, to put it uh, a little, uh, humanize it a little bit. As the bacteria get used to those genes, the, that cost declines. And then the other thing is there's some very famous examples of uh, a whole class of drugs being used much less, and everyone thought the resistance genes would go away. There's a case in E. coli in England uh, in the 80s and 90s. The problem is that the same bacteria were resistant to the new drug that they used instead. And so shifting from one drug to another, if the drug bugs are multi-resistant, doesn't always have the effect that you want. So it's, it, as Kevin said, the biology gets in the way of those nice stories. I think most of our answers have been, it's a lot more complex than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, uh, whoops, I'm looking at my pad here. Uh, how, this is a question from, uh, David, not me. How important is the role of topical antimicrobial photodynamic therapy for combating AMR? Um, I suspect this comes from somebody who has a topical photodynamic <laughs> <laughs> company. Well, because uh, someone will explain how photodynamic therapy works for uh, bacterial infections. No? I mean, right. there's a role for topical antibiotics. We, you know, we use them all at home, and, and there's also a role for these in 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 uh, like wounds for traumatic, you know, so combat uh, in which something has exploded and, you know, there's a role for topicals there as well. Uh, and U.S. Department of Defense uh, is in, in BARDA within the U.S. government support these types of programs. I don't know. If well, I think we have time for maybe one more question here, and this one I think is, uh, is for Mark. Um, it's from Leslie on Facebook. I feel if people weren't so hard up for medical treatment, they wouldn't self-diagnose and self-medicate. This would eliminate some of the unnecessary use of antibiotics. Really more of a comment than a question, but what do you make of that? 
I don't know why that's for me, but I'll, I'll take a stab. <laughs> um, I think uh, I think it gets back to to Kevin's tripod that the the appropriate use and proper use of antibiotics requires access, innovation, and and stewardship. And uh, I think this question and just is saying correctly that if you if people don't have access to high quality and readily available medical care, they'll do what they think they can do. Mm-hmm. Anyone so else that's who true. thinks it's for them? <laughs> well, I would just say that, um, to echo Lori's earlier point, I think that one of the biggest messages is that we all have a role here, and I think the question should be, why do I need this antibiotic? Right. Do I really need this antibiotic? I love it when my patients ask me that. <laughs> and I think that's what people should ask, because yeah. every antibiotic has a risk. And so if you take one thing away, I think that's an important thing to take away. Um, antibiotics are life-saving. They're incredible miracles that we have. But every time you get one, you should say, do I really need this? Well, so that's, we're getting close here. So I'd like to ask everyone to give their takeaway. Is that your takeaway message? Do you want to add anything else? Helen? Well, I think, um, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. And my takeaway is that I hope that with this collaboration with everybody, all of the citizens, um, understanding the problem of antimicrobial resistance, that we will be able to advance and we'll be able to ensure that there are tools in the toolkit so that everyone can get the therapy that they need, whether it's chemotherapy for cancer, the care of their premature baby, or a joint replacement. Um, and I think working together, we can do that. Kevin, what's your takeaway? I, I'm pretty hopeful for the whole sector. The science is really astonishingly good in terms of the new things that are coming in, into the preclinical pipeline. Governments and foundations with lots of money, like the Wellcome Trust and the, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, are very engaged. So that people are listening. People who need to be listening are listening. And, uh, and we have an opportunity. You know, the broad outlines of how we can fix this are well known. Um, you know, convincing uh, you know governments to actually take that next step and to find a different way to pay for these products uh, is the is the next thing that has to happen. Lauren, what about you? What's your takeaway message? Yeah, so I actually will echo uh, what Helen just mentioned. And I heard a Swedish proverb last week, many little streams make a mighty river. And and I think it goes back to the fact that every single individual has a role to play in tackling this problem. And we all can help to improve how we're using antibiotics, whether you're a patient, a physician, a veterinarian, or an industry leader. Uh, we also want to just acknowledge that there are a lot of uh, materials and resources available out there for anyone who's more interested in this topic and wants to kind of educate their friends or family members or approach their physician with um, information. And so we have a website. Um, it, it's based upon the Be Antibiotics Aware campaign, and you can find that information on the <coughs> CDC website. Uh, we also have an observance in, in, in November. It's November 18th through 24th. It's a worldwide observance in collaboration with many, many different countries. And this is also a nice opportunity. If you have a message you want to share about this particular topic, feel free to get on uh, social media and share your thoughts and opinions and about this issue and what you're doing to make a difference. Thanks. Well, I'm a researcher and a, and a public health person, and I think I agree with all of these points and the need to, to work from many directions. The direction that we're trying to work from that I think requires a lot of efforts from a lot of kinds of people is really quantifying what is the burden 
doing the surveillance in the places where it's hard to do, reporting that surveillance appropriately um, and in a meaningful way, and developing quantitative tools to be able to give good answers to if you have to use an antibiotic, which one is better? It's really not always clear. Um, and so there are a number of scientific questions that can <coughs> help. They're not going to, and no one is going to solve the problem altogether, but, but it, trying to get the science better uh, is a huge piece of the puzzle. Thank you. So that concludes uh, the program today, I believe. Um, thanks very much to our panelists and for people who joined here in the audience. Um, the next uh, forum will be a governor's roundtable discussion about responding to natural disasters in a time of climate change. Um, it'll be held from noon to 1 Eastern time on November 14th here and on the forum website, forumhsbh.org. So thank everybody. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.